Foundation podcast. My name is Simone Scott and I'm going to be sharing some South African stories of hope with you. My goal is to give you more information about the great things that people out there are doing to improve our country. Here we are at episode 7 and the start of a two-part series. Honestly, I never thought I would make it this far in the first season. I had planned on just producing six episodes, but then I stumbled upon this group of people who were working into the environmental space. And I realized this topic is far too big for just one episode. So today you will hear from my very first interviewee, Paolo Candotti, the head of the Clove Conservancy. I had sent off a pitch email to different environmental organizations that I found by simply Google searching. And the very next day I heard back from him. I can't quite describe the feeling of getting that first yes. I was happy, I was scared, overwhelmed, excited, so many things. Mainly, I was grateful that he was willing to meet with me. Especially seeing as he agreed to meet with me on a Saturday. And let me just say, this guy is a very busy person. Even on the Saturday we met, he would be busy working in a little grassland in the middle of Kluif where himself and his volunteers get together once a month to clean this piece of land. They spend hours picking up litter and killing invasive alien plants. He gave me his phone number and I set off to find this little patch of unpopulated land in the middle of a residential area. Luckily they had some banners up or I may have been a bit confused. It kind of looks like overgrown vegetation, which he did warn me about before we met. And boy was I nervous when I parked my car. What if I really sucked at this? But no turning back now. (laughs) And I knew I really wanted to do this, so I would just have to push through. When I arrived, I called him and he came out to meet me and kindly set up two camping chairs for us next to his bucky. For over an hour, he gave me a bit of context on our situation in KZN and explained what the Conservancy does. He also showed me around the grassland itself, pointing out things that I definitely would have missed. A lot of the plants he showed me, I would never have recognized as special. It was a wonderful experience. I left there with a bit of a sunburn, yes, but with a very happy spirit. I have to add a quick side note here. Because we are sitting on the side of the actual road, you will hear cars going past every now and then in the background. But thankfully, Paolo's voice does rise above the noise, so you will get the message. So first things first, for those of you who don't know, like I didn't, Let's learn what a conservancy actually is and what they do. Conservancy started, I would say, about 30 years ago. Uh, as in Velo, case in Wildlife, they, they, uh, the, the they mandated to look after the, the protected areas, the official protected areas, but they also have a mandate to look after biodiversity in the whole of KZN, which is different from what sand parks have got. Sand parks only look after the national parks everywhere except KZN. Anyway, so they had a mandate to look after the whole biodiversity and they realized they couldn't do it on their own. So they started roping in basically farmers, basically farmers who had owned large tracts of land and they started forming conservancy. So when the conservancy movement started 30, 35 years ago, it was basically a lot of uh, guys that had big properties that then sort of grouped together and they started looking after the wildlife or whatever biodiversity in those patches and they even had game ranges and all sorts of things. So it was like an, a, not quite a national park, but like a you know, semi-semi-park thing. And also obviously they were farming those properties. So, so that, that started off and that, that was the whole beginning of the conservancy's movement in, in KZN. I've got no idea what's happened elsewhere in the country. So I know that there are conservancies elsewhere, but I've got no idea how they function. Um, and then uh, about 22, 23 years ago, Everton Conservancy up the road here started the first urban conservancy 
and the, uh, that that slightly shifted the the or mixed up the the types of conservancies that existed because now like Kloof, we don't own any property other than our own home but we look after the area in a sense whereas the the, the traditional conservancies they looked after the land that they owned, so the farmers owned that land. So now the urban conservancies really look after, we try by advocacy and example and by raising money and doing certain projects, we try to look after the Kloof area, shall we say, as I'm picking Kloof because that's where we are at the moment. So, so, so we have those types, and then also uh, marine conservancy started, so like the ones along the coast, and they protect the marine environment in a sense, or try to protect the marine environment. So those are the, 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 the broad three categories of, of conservancy that you have. You have the, the old ones, which are land-based, you then have the urban ones, which are also, I suppose, land-based, but they're more organizations working in an area rather than looking after the, the whole piece of land. And then you've got the coastal conservancies that look that try and protect the the, the coastal environment. Th there are about 90 conservancies in KZN, spread throughout the province. There are some of them are very effective and some of them are not very effective. So if you wanted stories, you can get really good stories about a farming environment, a rural environment, uh, urban sorry urban environment, and the coastal. And there's good stories in each one of those areas. In fact, we've just started. Okay, so I'm, in, I'm the chairman of the Kloof Conservancy. I'm also involved as the chairman of what's called the Etiquini Conservancies Forum, which brings together, th there's 35 conservancies in Etiquini. So we meet three times a year to share and whatnot. So I, and then I'm also on the, the, the exec team for the conservancies KZN, which is where you contact Susan, who's now our admin uh, manager. So the Conservancies Association tries to coordinate the efforts of all the conservancies in, in KZN. It's got its problems because money is always an issue and it's all volunteer based and when it's volunteer based it's very hard to get things done. And also all the, all the conservancies are volunteers. So some of them are very effective, some of them do a lot of good work. Conservancy is basically a group of people that get together and say let's look after our patch. And the patch can be quite amorphous, shall we say. It doesn't have to, we do try and draw lines but there's no I don't, I don't believe in having a line because the environment doesn't believe in lines. The environment ecosystem goes beyond. And it's no use us having a great, fantastic environment in Kloof when my neighbors down in Mulweni are living in terrible environment. It's the same ecosystem. We need to help and we need to make them, you know, you talk about environmental justice. Environmental justice means everybody having the same quality of environment. We, we don't have environmental justice in South Africa. And I think what we're trying to do as Conservancies Association is try actually to try to increase capacity to try and 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 and, uh, and it's, it's really quite new and we haven't really got very far so we try to, to 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 promote the ones that are doing very well and trying to get others to catch up to them paulo is an engineer by the way so he has a full-time occupation and that's why we're sitting on the side of a grassland on a saturday morning both with full-time jobs and only able to meet on the weekend while he's busy volunteering as we sat and spoke he explained a bit more around the challenges faced by an organization like this that is completely reliant on volunteers. Explaining that it can be hard for people to give up of their time for a cause when they cannot see the tangible results of their contribution. Yeah, we have about 200 members or so. The majority of the members support us. They pay 150 rand a year basically because they, they want to support us. Very few are involved actively. And that is because everyone's too busy, but at least they support us. You could say Kloof has got, probably got 10,000 inhabitants or 10,000 families, so 200 people support us, so it's really peanut. Uh, you'd think a lot more would support us, but that's the nature of things. I think people 
But out of the 200, maybe we have an active group of, of 10, 15. That, but when we do organize things and we ask for help, we do get a lot of help. I mean, we, we run the open gardens and we run something called the Three Falls Trail Run. Have you been to Kloof Gorge? No, I don't think so. Gosh, you have to go through Kloof Gorge. Kloof Gorge is an absolute stunning biodiversity hotspot uh, in, in Etiquini. It's, it's beautiful scenery and the, the, the plant life is amazing there. And we, run a, we organize a trail run there to raise money um, for, for the conservancy. And uh, we raise 90,000 a year. Uh, and we call for volunteers to help. We get 90 volunteers to help for the day. So basically what happens is, if I, if I, you're a member, and I say to you, Simone, will you, will you uh, organize uh, marshals for, for the trail run? You say, oh, geez, no, I've got too much work to do. I, I really, I can't, I've got this work, I've, that work, my boss is chasing me, my kids are going to school. Uh, a thousand and one excuses. If I say to you, Simone, would you mind on Sunday, the, the 4th of August, giving us three hours of your time to stand in the corner in the reserve with a flag? No problem and we get 80, 90 people to help. So the people are willing to help in that sense, but they're not willing to organize. And unfortunately, helping the environment means getting involved, getting organized. And I, I, I do get quite a lot of people that say, we want to help you. And then I, I have a meeting with them and they say, what, what should we do? And he says, well, part of the job is to organize this, this, and this. And I said, no, they thought oh, I'm going to save something and I want to save something fluffy and warm or, you know, can't I do something more environmentally to get there you've got to do the you've got to do the dirty work you know what I mean <laughs> you got to do the planning you've got to do the organizing if you want to clean the river you can't just go and do a cleanup that's what people do they go and do a cleanup it doesn't solve the problem so if you want to you want to save the M13 you've got to raise money to save the M13 you've got to go and knock on doors and say will you buy a sign that's not environmental work is it that's not exciting saving the a dog or something, that's exciting, you know, saving a little buck or something, that's exciting. Can't I save a buck? You know, you got, you got, to, you got to do some knocking on doors, go and beg for money, you know, to, so that we've got money, then we can run a project. People don't like doing that. The Kloof Conservancy is quite active in their community and they've made a few great strides in the area. Paolo also explained more on what he means by getting organized. Annie had a great example of how it's paid off for them in the M13 project. I brought this up because I'd noticed one of their very tasteful adverts on the side of the road advertising a company called Hayslop. I'd always noticed the small rabbit on the sign, but never noticed what, that it also said a project of the Clue of Conservancy until I'd been driving up to this particular meeting. Paolo explained to me that they had made a deal with the KZN Department of Transport, whereby they would be allowed to sell small advertising signs and that they could then use the funds raised from selling these adverts to maintain the vegetation on the side of the road. So they used the funds to keep the stretch of road clean from litter and invasive alien plants. It was sheer genius. So that project is a fantastic project because what it does, we raise money from the from commerce, business, and we're saving the Department of Transport a fortune. that They don't have to do anything. Uh, we do maintain the grass under our rules, and that is, we will say we'll cut, we'll cut for visibility, for safety, that's no argument. But if there's a bank, we won't cut all the way through because we want, the vegeta we want grass to grow and birds to feed off the seeds and whatnot. A lot of residents complain because, oh, the grass is too long, it should be cut. And say, well, this is not about making a, a, a pretty garden. This is about the natural, creating a natural environment, not a, a beautiful manicured 
landscape. This is about a nature, and if you leave it to become natural, it becomes stunningly beautiful in places. Some, some. Uh, so that's the M13 project. Yeah, that's the one that's been going for for quite a long time now. Yeah, we do indigenous open gardens as advocacy. We run a project with schools. If you look at our Kloof Conservancy, you will see projects on the projects. You see all over projects. On the invasive alien plants, we took the government to court in 2012 to force them to implement legislation, which they did. They surrendered and did. Uh, we won the case against the minister, which was quite, a <laughs> quite an interesting affair. Uh, we now work quite closely with the Department of Environmental Affairs after having taken them to court. So that was, that was quite fun. Um, yeah, so, but that's, that's here. But for now, let's move on from the work being done by the Kloof Conservancy to hear more from other conservancies in KZN that are also actively working to improve their areas. Like Paolo suggested, I contacted a few of the other groups after our meeting and managed to set up interviews with two more, the Dargle Conservancy and the Clansdale Conservancy, who have both fought and won some battles in their respective areas. First, we will hear from Ashley, a farmer who heads up the Dargle Conservancy. A friend of mine accompanied me on this trip. We drove up to the farm together, enjoying the beautiful scenery. And when we arrived, we were given a warm reception, even served some tea and banana bread by Ashley's father. This despite a crisis they were having with one of the cows who were calving. When we settled in, Ashley explained how he got involved with the conservancy. Listening to him speak, it seemed like it was quite a natural process for him to get involved. When we, we moved down here in 2012, and um, I suppose we, put a, we would have gone to one of the meetings I'm trying to think what the earliest meeting was, probably one of the frack-free uh, meetings that they had um, here in the area. So obviously getting uh, people involved and informed about what fracking is and that sort of thing. And because the, the rhino oil and gas were, were coming to the area and trying to get um, exploration permits and that sort of thing. So we went along to the talks and, you know, quite an eye-opener, never heard of it before then, so, um, you know, they, they opened their eyes up to that. And from there, you know, each month they, they would have various um, talks and presentations. And I think at that stage we also had quite a few movie nights as well. You know, each month they'd try and do something just to keep people involved and keep the, um, the educational aspect open as well just so that you know, people know what's going on. You know, you've got all this happening around you and we don't want things to, to um, destroy the natural beauty of our area at least. So we're trying to educate and inform people as to what, um, what is going on out there and what companies are trying to do, like, like the fracking. But it, yeah, no, it's, it's just to keep... Um, Everyone informed, educated. Um, we go try and work in some of the, the, the local schools and things. We, um, we also organise speakers to to come out there. Um, Pat McCrill, he's um, a snake expert, um, and we try and get him out every other year. And he'll come out and he'll speak to the kids, and he'll bring all his snakes with and let them touch these huge big things or snakes that he's um, captured from people's homes or things out in the city that they want taken out. So he'll, he's the guy who'll go out and, uh, and safely rezone those uh, or take them back out to, 
the natural areas such as this, such as this or out to the forest and then release them. Um, but he does quite a few interesting talks. And so we try and do things like that. So that's for the sort of the younger side. We're trying to, this year we actually said we wanted to focus more on, on the education of the, of the younger generation. Um, try, and, try and invest more of our, our funds and things that we get from our memberships and as well as other people that do regular donations to us. Um, try and get that, that money going to educational programs, which is, I think, very important. Try and keep the work on the youth, especially. Um, we do work work um, with the adults as well, um, like the local communities and and such. We try and <clears throat> try and do some presentations, you know, in in their own languages, Zulu or or whatnot, and um, get them also involved because they also like to get out from the, the normal humdrum, mundane day-to-day -day life and uh, they also like to see what's out there and they'll have the snake talk and they'll be like oh, we, we didn't know about this so that they actually serve as a purpose you know it's a snake is just an evil spirit you know it's that that's that's the thing so you go there and say well they actually serve a purpose they after the rats or whatever that are in your house or the rodents so then they they think oh well that's actually a good thing so now they're not just killing something when they see it just because they don't know about it. You know, things that we we take for granted. Um, I might kill a snake. <laughs> <laughs> I think no, you'd, I you'd probably run the opposite direction. Yeah, I probably wouldn't try to engage it, but uh, if I could kill it, I probably wouldn't. <laughs> Ashley explained the importance of education when it comes to doing the best for the environment. He gave us the example of how people within the community have now started to rather take a photo of a snake to, f to find out if it's actually harmful or not, before taking any other action like killing it. He told us more about how they get people involved by offering these different educational talks. They don't only focus on snakes, by the way, and they also run markets. As we talked, Ashley made it clear that everyone in the area is welcome to be a part of the conservancy. Again, the challenges of a volunteer-based organization came across in our conversation as well. Ashley is clearly very busy. As you can hear, by the way, his phone is going crazy in the background while we talk. So he's always grateful when other volunteers get involved and run with something. He also explained that historically the conservancy was created to protect wildlife from poaching, but that it's evolved into what it is today, a more inclusive organization that aims to educate everyone. I think it's once a month the, uh, the, Dargle, the Dargle market happens at the, um, the hay barn at the moment. It used to be at the little Il Postino veranda there and then it's moved around over the years, but we like to keep that going once a month. Um, you know, all the quite a few of the locals will gather there and bring their produce and sell whatever they've got at the time. Seasonal produce or vegetables. Some bring eggs. Some will bring their um, do the bacon and egg rolls. So you know, try and keep the the, the local things going because um, we've got the. The dog or pork products just over the hill. Um, you might have passed them on the, the Fort Nottingham Road there. Um, they would have been on your right hand side. But you know, also trying to keep people's minds open to, to coming out for the markets and supporting your local farmer. And it's always a nice get together and you chat to people. And sorry, let me just turn that off.
yeah, it was actually more the farmers getting together and making like a little group for a protection thing. And then, yeah, I think slowly but surely it sort of evolved a bit more to be including everybody and saying, well, this is the environment we live in, so how do we look after it? How do we educate our youth? How do we educate the people who work for us? Or, you know, we, we sit here going, well, you know, this is, this is logical that we need to do it. But no, it's not for everybody. Not everybody thinks like you or has had the same education or, you know, different backgrounds. So you've got to you've got to take everything into account and try and try and focus on everybody. And you can't keep everybody happy all the time, but you can certainly include everyone. I thought litter would be less of a problem here, but Ashley tells me that he can easily fill up a 50 kg feed bag with rubbish every single day. He keeps the area leading up to his farm clean himself, because they also run an Airbnb and he wants new visitors to see the best of the area. He also explained to me how they, as the Conservancy, advocate for the Dargle area by attending meetings as a registered, interested and affected party. So basically when new factories, large farms or other enterprises are set to open in the area, they are able to attend a meeting where they can speak up and bring to light some of the issues that these new enterprises would bring into the community. He gave me a, a recent example about a chicken producer that was planned to open in the area and how their members then went to the meeting and advocated for the Doggle community. Thanks to the concerns they raised, this big chicken producer now has to go back to the drawing board and find solutions before they can come and build and open and open up this big new farm enterprise. He also spoke about fracking, which was another big battle they fought in the area because of the impact it would have. That was quite an, quite an eye-opener when it did come out here. I mean, we get all these... You go buy your, your natural gas, your easy gas, and you think, oh, well, gas is gas, it's nice and cheap and easy, until you actually see how they, how they produce it. Um, I, I don't know where we get all of our gas from, but um, certainly when they came to the area and then they showed us videos and things, ma mainly um, from America, and they went in the, the communities there and they asked about the fracking and Obviously, also a lot of uneducated um, or, or not very well-educated communities in the in the states. Then they target those areas and then send them their big company and say, "There's money," and the community thinks, "Well, this is great. We this, we desperately need it, and um, we've just got this gas just sitting there doing nothing." But it's once they start to extract the gas that is that's the fracking part because they actually drill like a borehole, they drill holes into the ground and then they inject water and chemicals, a concoction of chemicals into this hole to break all the all the rock and shale and everything going down because it's, I think it's mainly within the shale levels um, and then they, there's like little pockets here and there and then they'll hit that and then extract that but you know you're getting the gas, but it's all that rubbish that they're putting down in there. I mean, some of the things you'd, you'd um, you know, look at the chemicals. I just remember, I think the one was, but was butane or something like that, or benzene. I still remember because one of my farm workers still said it to me in the, in the you know, driving down to the meeting because I took him with to this fracking meeting and he said this thing. I was like, what? You put, you're putting all these chemicals down there to extract gas 
where where is the stuff going after that you know where is your underground water it's down there it's underground and you're just pumping all these chemicals into the ground um, so not only is that potentially contaminating your underground drinking water you know we've got a ball here we're extracting that so that we can drink and now they're potentially going to pollute that if they came to this area and put up a fracking well over there yes it would be very nice for me to get the, the income i'd love to have it but <laughs> you got to think well is that going to kill all the fish in the dam is that going to contaminate all your rivers in the area you, you do not know what the impact is of that because you don't know where the little waterways and things are going mm. and i think recently i saw in the uk um was it the labor party or something they actually put a ban on all fracking in the uk at the moment we protest i mean <laughs> i think the rhino oil and gas guys rocked up here they uh also, sort of under the radar. Now we just having a little meeting at the the Lions River Club down the road. What's this about? Oh, about the fracking. And I think the word was spread far and wide, and Facebook and social media. There was like four or five hundred people that came to that event. That we couldn't get into the club. The the club inside was full. All the chairs were full. All the all the sitting room on the floor was full, and there were three or four five, six rows of people outside, like climbing through the windows and things, <laughs> trying to listen to this, this talk sure. and telling this guy pretty much to get out of town. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it got, uh, got very heated over there. So no, people are very aware of what's happening out there. I think with social media, it's, you can't just come and sneak something in here. People are going to find out very quickly. And I think with more, people are becoming more and more conservation-minded all the time. So you kick that hornet's nest, you're going to get stung very quickly when the people start to revolt. <laughs> so, well, we just, we're just small, but, you know, do our part. Leaving Ashley's farm, I was grateful for the fact that there are people like the volunteers in Dargo who are being vigilant about speaking up for the community who are willing to stand up against big companies or other entities to defend the area. To raise funds, they host monthly activities and their membership subscription fees are 300 rand a year. As I said earlier, Paolo recommended that I get out there and meet the people who are actively busy making a difference in their particular patch of South Africa. And another conservancy he recommended was the Clan Style Conservancy. I met with the chairman, Keith Cunningham, at his home in this really beautiful area. I just love driving there, enjoying the amazing sea views on the way to Clansdale. And when I finally arrived at Keith's home, we sat down to chat over a cup of tea with another stunning view right outside his lounge window. He gave me a bit more background on Clansdale itself, as well as the conservancy here. It's, it's the last coastal village on the south coast of, of the Durban metro. And um, I think it's the last coastal village in the whole of the Durban metro because, you know, it is so small. It's... I think there's 120 lots in total, and, and that's it. it. It can't get any bigger. It's a fairly small community, and we have to look after ourselves. Um, you know, we, we run various projects as the Conservancy. Um, we have Safe Place Clansel, and that includes um, somebody who looks after the security in the area. We have uh, various WhatsApp groups that talk to each other about crime and security. Uh, we have patrols that go out every night 
um, done by the residents. Um, and we have pretty good relationships with the local SAPs and uh, the armed response companies. I think when I, when I first moved here back in 2001, you know, like everything, you know, crime spikes from time to time. And I was looking at creating some kind of security structure. And at that time, there was uh, a guy who lives down on near Greenpoint, Rob Crankshaw. He had started the Greenpoint Conservancy and put up a sign. So I figured, well, conservancy people are probably like people who are interested in securities and you know they'll, they'll they'll join both so i phoned rob and we had a meeting and we decided well let's create the Clansell conservancy um and that probably was started around about um 2003 2004. in a little place of Clansell of just over 100 houses we've got 60 members and, and, and there's other people saying, I'll get around to it, I will do it, I will do it. So we, I think we're doing something right. Now that I knew a bit more about the history of this conservancy, Keith shared their biggest success story with me. They battled for many, many years to be able to declare a no-take zone, where marine life would be protected and no fishing would take place. The goal being to help replenish the marine life within the area. Hearing Keith talk about it, it's obvious that this was a long and laborious process. You may not know the areas he refers to, but if you bear with him, you will hear the logic behind his story. I'm going to summarize some things for you to keep in mind as you listen. Basically, at some point in the process, the most important part of this no-take zone was in danger of being taken away from them. And secondly, throughout the process, they discovered that there were other, more viable options where the coastline would probably have benef benefited even more from ensuring that fish are protected because this would lead to the breeding of more fish. But he brings up the point that this was outside of their specific area around Clansdale, so they couldn't play a role in ensuring that this is adhered to afterwards. What, what happened is that we, we realized an awfully long time ago that the kind of fishing and um, harvesting of marine organisms that was taking place was, was completely unsustainable, not just here, but around the world. Um, and we wrote a letter into the old Ezenvelo KZN Wildlife, the old parks board, and, and, and asked and said that we'd like to start a no-take zone in this area. And we, we heard absolutely nothing. And then probably, um, I can't remember the dates, it's, it's taken such a long time, but with the um, Marine Protected Areas Expansion Strategy from the Department of Environmental Affairs, um, there was a, uh, an advert in, in the papers from Ezenvelo stating that uh, the public could nominate where they would like new marine protected areas created. And we said, well, fine. And we wrote a letter initially just um, for a no -take, an inshore no-take zone from uh, Musselcracker Bay, which um, is, is the Matlangwana River in the north. Um, which would include uh, Musclecracker Bay, No Name Bay, uh, Errol Hayes Rocks, Blamey Bay, uh, Greenpoint, and um, Mamba Alley Beach to the Matlongwa River. And we were selected by um, Isenvelo and the Durban Metro to sit on a, um, a team that would make this happen. 
And it was really, really quite interesting how it was done because through talking about the MPA at, at back then, I think it was around about 180, 190 square kilometers, it was actually too small to be viable. And uh, in literally in about two minutes, it was, well, why don't we make it bigger? Why don't we increase the northern boundary and push it north through Ungababa to the Lova River? And why don't we put the eastern boundary all the way on the 200 meter line just before the, uh, the continental shelf? And we went, well, why not? And, and the, the, the environmentalists and the conservatives, uh, cons conservationists just said, yes, that completely makes it a far more viable marine reserve. And, and so that was what was proposed, and we had a memorandum of understanding as, with um, Isenvela as the champions, because this was such a new process, they, they wanted us to help them create a process where if this happened again in the future, they then had a blueprint that they could then roll out. Um, and and we, were, we were told that if everything goes to plan, it would be three years. That doesn't work with government, that's for sure. I mean, it, it's taken us nearly 14 years, you know. I mean, yeah, and, and with the Ezenvelo, that uh, probably about 10 years in total. And then what happened was this Pakisa, Operation Pakisa, the, the, ocean, the ocean economy came, and we were completely shut out. Um, we were just dropped, and we had no... We had no inter in input into the, um, into the task team. And as much as we said, what's happening and why is this, nothing happened. And, and we were quite concerned about this no-take zone. Um, there was also, towards the end, um, when the, the deadline was approaching, where propose, where, where the, 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 the ground truthing and, and what the proposal was had to go in, um, the fishermen sort of woke up that potentially this no-take zone was going to go ahead. And there was vociferous um, objections to what we were proposing, to the extent where, you know, conversation and logic, which just went completely out the window. Um, people just did not want to listen. Um, and, and the sad thing is, is that the fishermen and their dependents and, 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 and their future grandchildren are actually the ones that are going to benefit the most from this. Um, and basically, the task team slash is in Velo, and, and I'm speaking completely honestly on, on, on this, basically turned around and recommended that the most important part of the tag zone, namely Cracker Bay, because it has the, entire, the, 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 the intertidal rocks, um, should be allowed and be open to fishing. And they offered us um, Black Rock Beach, which is to the south of Mashlangwa. But it's, it, it, it's completely built up. There, there, there are very few rocks there. Um, there's a launch site there. It, it was completely inappropriate. Um, and the, 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 the Cracker Bay is, is central to making this a, a viable no-take zone. Um, we then put a, an objection in to what Isenvela and the fishing lobby had, had proposed. And we said that um, we would offer up Mamba Alley 
as Fishing Beach. Now we did this with Lang Thunder, hey? um, because it's, it's a beautiful beach and it's got some of the best remaining dune vegetation, in, certainly in the Etegweni and, 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 the, and the Marine, marine Reserve. Um, I should say to you that what, this area that we've chosen for the, the, the no-tag zone is actually probably the, the least um, useful area in the, in the marine, marine reserve in that um, much of it is just marine desert. I mean, if you go off here at Blaby Bay, there, there's very few rocks. Um, but the, the areas we should have chosen um, because they're so much more productive are the Scottborough Park Rani rocks, um, the, the Widnam Umkamas, and now the Umgobaba um, in, in shore areas, because they're far more productive than, than this. But what we also realized was that we couldn't go to the people of Scottborough, Umkamas, or Umgobaba and say, well, we'd like to make these areas a, a no-take zone, because we don't live there. You know, and, and, and we couldn't police it, but we're here. We, we can play a role in, in doing this because we, we can we come on board with this. Um, and so that's, that's what we couldn't really connect with the fishermen about. Um, because even the, the guys who ski boat fishermen and the diving operators, they were against this no-take zone. And, and, and when we were saying why, there was actually no logical reason. Emotions just completely took over. And... I can understand in some ways of the fishermen saying, but we're losing our rights. But do, does their rights actually trump everybody else's rights? And, and knowing what is happening in the ocean and the, the overfishing and the poaching that goes on. The poaching is horrendous and not just here, everywhere. Um, so last year, all of a sudden, it was announced that the no-take zone was going ahead, the expansion was going ahead, and wh what has happened is that the no-take zone's actually been made as small as it can possibly be. It's about 3.7 kilometers, but it does include Cracker Bay, which, which is absolutely central. So Cracker Bay, No Name Bay, Hayes Rocks, Blamey Bay, and the majority of Greenpoint. The, the, it, the far south, southeastern portion of Greenpoint, which is the high fishing rocks, that, that's where the, the southern boundary actually is. Um, so we've got the minimum we actually need to make this a viable no-take no zone. We, we've done the ground truthing. We've, um, we, we, we've got the, the marker which says this is what this area is like as of the 1st of September. Um, we're starting citizen science projects where the members on a monthly basis at, 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 at uh, Springs Lowe's will go to the rocks, tread, set out the transacts or transepts, whatever they call them, take the photographs so that we can actually monitor on a monthly basis over the next 5-10 years the increase in the growth on the rocks. 
Because the idea, and, and, and at the, the lee side, on the northern side of Greenpoint, um, that's also a fish nursery. If you go there, all the India Pacific fish, the tiny ones are in there. And, 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 and the idea is, is that the more life, resident life that is in this area, the more pelagics it'll actually it'll attract during the sardine run, during the, 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 um, uh, the shad seasons and stuff like that. And ultimately what will happen is once the resident fish reach a certain level, the carrying capacity will require that those fish then spill over into the fishing areas. Therefore, the fishermen will benefit. So our, what is now called the Greenpoint inshore restricted zone, um, you may not fish, you may not harvest, you, you, you can, you, nothing on a consumptive basis may be done, but you can dive, you can surf, you can swim, um, kite surf, paddle, and all the rest of it. And what we're hoping is over time is that fishermen um, actually come to accept that we're doing this for, for all of us. It, it's not just for Clansville because there's nothing stopping anybody coming and spending a day on the beach in Clansville as long as they don't litter. Wow, a 14-year battle. That's pretty epic actually. To have the energy to pursue something despite multiple shifts of the goalposts, meaning they had to explore new avenues to make themselves heard and with resistance from the community around them. Let's just say that Keith and his team really had to love this area to keep persevering with all these obstacles in the way. As we spoke, I realized that the work was far from over, that even though they've now managed to protect this important area when it comes to the law, they still really need buy-in from the community. The challenge, both offshore and onshore, is now to police what we've got. And I, I do feel for the local Isimvelo um, guys because they really, really stretched. They were stretched when it was under 200 square kilometers. Now they're really stretched when it's just under 600 square kilometers. Um, but the whole thing is it, it, it's not going to work purely through policing. The stick needs to be there. It, it, it's a change in mind, it's a change in attitude that, that, that needs to happen. And I think that's potentially going to be the biggest role that, that we can play. And I, I don't think we as, as volunteers are necessarily able to do that by ourselves. I, I really do think there needs to be a whether it's done via NGOs or whether it's done via NGOs and the government, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure. Um, but, and, and I don't think it, just, it can just be a Clansell thing. I, I think it is a South African um, thing about educating people about the impact that their actions and behaviors have on the marine ecosystem. And, and, you know, we can't do anything about the Chinese and the Spanish trawlers that are out there. You know, that, that's, that's beyond our capability. But we can make a difference in this little area called Clansell. And, you know, other, other, other um, conservancies such as Pennington down the road from us are doing fantastic work really quality work. Maybe not so much on the marine side, maybe more on the terrestrial side than we are. Um, but there, there, there's so much knowledge that rests in conservancies. You know, might not be specialist PhD doctorate knowledge, but 
there's a lot of people that are, are willing to do things. And I, and I think one of the big things that the government and the, the professional environmentalists are actually missing is coming to talk to people like conservancies and saying, how can we help and, and how can you help us? Yeah, you've got the local um, um, crayfish poachers that come in and they sell to the restaurants. And I can understand the restaurants buying it because the cost of, of, of crayfish is absolutely stupid. But I gave up crayfishing and mussling and oystering because we wanted this to be a no-take zone. So we've got to deal with those guys. Then, then for a while we had the Chinese syndicate that were coming in and they, and they were clearing the Cracker Bay rocks. And they would come in with shovels at low tide and they would, they would steal. Then we've, got, um, then, then we've got the licensed commercial musslers that come in who are allowed to take mussels, but they take absolutely everything. They're not allowed to do it on this no-take zone. Thank goodness. Now, then, then you've got your, your, your average recreational shore fisherman. And you know, it's not all fishermen. There's some club fishermen. There are some people that fish. They come, they fish, they have a beer. A lot of people just take what they want for the pot and, 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 and catch and release. They clean up everything. Wonderful. But there's a significant number of people that come here and just do not care. They litter, they poach, they damage. Um, and, and when you say, who is it? It's never me. It's always somebody else. It's not always someone else. It's fishermen. And I know this will cheese some fishermen off to the nth degree. Suck it up, guys. The only reason there's no fish in the sea is because of fishermen. Keith gave me quite a few examples of the good work that they do. Similar to the Clough Conservancy, they also keep their road clean. On top of that, they also partner with a local small business owner who has his own recycling company in the area. The, one of the residents here, she found a guy called Prem who has Prem Recycling. And he started a family business. She said, no, I'll come. So every Wednesday we put our recycled stuff out and Prem's truck comes around and he picks up paper, cardboard, metal, um, glass, plastics and stuff like that. And we, we, we've put out, this is what you can, you know, on, under the Conservancy banner we sent to all the residents, this is what you can um, recycle, this is what you can't recycle. And Prem's great because we, we were cleaning out our old garage the other day and we came up with our... our what are we going to do with this? Excuse me. And you say to Prem, come and have a look. And Prem says, I can take that, 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 that. I can't take that. But I'll take it in and I'll dispose it for you. So we're helping a small business as well. And more and more residents are starting to separate their waste. And what we know for sure is if there's value to that waste, that waste company will try and maximize that value. Whereas the municipality, I think a lot of their guys aren't educated, so it's easier just to turf it. But it's like the R102, you might have, as you come down the road here, you might have thought, my goodness, it's, it's clean compared to some of the other places. Well, we clean it. We have a thing called the Verge Challenge where we, we try and clean our verges and we, some people donate their gardeners on a Wednesday, other people put 170 rand in so we can, we can hire labor for it. And, and we've been clearing the, the R102 of, of just of litter generally. Um, 
uh, the legal dump sites where people come and dump, picking up nappies and, and garden refuse and dead dogs. And, and it, it's, it's, it's ongoing. It, it, it's ongoing. And then we decided we actually had to clear the vergers through the village on the R102 because it, it, was, it was actually quite dangerous. So, so what we do is we, we've got brush cutters and our guys go out and they, they clear the vergers. And the other day, um, w last year, we had a, a huge palaver with the roads because they hadn't cut it for over a year. And it was, it was actually really dangerous, not only for drivers, but for pedestrians and runners and cyclists and stuff. And they came eventually and they did a pretty good job. And then about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, these people appeared and they started cutting it. And I thought, my goodness, provincial roads are on the ball. But then I found out it wasn't. It was a local building company called Yoni Homes. And Nick and his wife just got so sick and tired of looking at the R102 and they had seen what the conservancy had done. And they went to the provincial road and said, we want to maintain it. And the provincial road said, well, what do you want out of it? And they didn't want to do it. But eventually they persevered. And if you go and you have a look at this stretch of the, 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 the R102, it must be one of the finest stretches of the whole of the R102 throughout South Africa. And that's what's happening. We've actually got to get involved because the government just is not doing it. Whether that it's lack of, because it can't be lack of knowledge because, I mean, you, all they're doing is cutting weeds and cutting stuff. It, it, it's actually lack of will and they say they have no money, but... You know, you've got, to, you've got to cut your verges and they're not doing it. So this community somehow is slowly starting to get it right. But our biggest fight is against people who poach, people who dump, people who actually just don't care. So, you know, everybody, even though you're just that little bit, take a checkers packet, because that's the only reason I buy checkers packets. So when I, can, when I go to the beach, I can take one with me and I can pick up the rubbish on the beach. You go down here, the beaches, our beaches are pretty clean because there's people who, when they go for a walk, just go and pick it up. Um, and I think that's why we get so cheesed off. When people come to Clansville, they come to this area where, where it is clean, where, it's, where, where people have a level of civic pride and say, I don't care. Care. Because your children are watching you. And if, if they see what mom and dad does, that's what they're going to do. Like this garden around here, it, it's just people saying, I'm going to do something different. And where a place was absolutely full of you know, alien invasives, it's now got indigenous plants and it looks a lot prettier. And the scabangas can't hide in here. And it's... So if more people would just take that, look at the verge opposite their, their properties and say, okay, what do I do with this? And do it. The Clansdale Conservancy also hosts a market every so often to raise funds. And I would highly recommend that anyone who can get there make the effort to visit this tiny but beautiful coastal town. The market is held in Keith's Garden. Local products and beer are for sale. In my opinion, this place is so beautiful that we should make every effort to help them keep it this way. When I chatted to Keith, they were fundraising to buy a good quality drone that was, would assist them with exploring and policing the area. If anyone can help, visit my blog for Keith's details and get in touch. It's a worthwhile investment. Similar to the Kloof Conservancy, their fees are also 150 rand per annum. During my conversation with Paolo, just to come back to him, I asked him what we could do 
to do our little bit to help the environment. He had some good advice for me. People are not too, you know, people hear about environment, climate change, uh, but it's people are too busy these days. You know, um, just getting volunteers to come and help here is a nightmare because no, I've got kids to, doing sports this, on Saturday morning. Uh, people are, ch are chasing money, trying to survive, got their own family problem. So the environment, they, they please that people like us do this. <laughs> Conservancy do. So you're doing a good job. Keep, keep going, guys. Well done. Keep going. Uh, but to get them involved is a nightmare. Having said that, though, your general behaviour. You know, there are lots of things that you can do as an individual. Uh, don't, don't rev up this hill and use more fuel and put more pollution in there. I mean, that's a, you might you might think that um, that's daft, but it's not daft. If, if you if you go to the if I fight with my wife, Woolies is five k's away. Plan your shopping. Go once a week. Don't go every second day because you're spending another. Not, don't worry about the cost of petrol. It's the amount of fumes that you're putting up. So you will say, oh, that's you know that's you're being trivial now. It's not being trivial. It's it's. <laughs> it's multiply that by a, how many people live in Etiquini? How many people have got? How many cars are there in Etiquini? Wasted, wasted mileage, or just pressing the accelerator too much? You know, you do. So, so there are things that you can do. Recycling is obviously uh, one of the things. Or buying local. You know, I, I get the hell in with Woolies. Why do they bring in stuff, uh, oranges or whatever, from Israel? You know, you, you, you know how much it must have cost to fly. How much? How much of the Earth's resources have they used? To bring in oranges or whatever from Israel or from you know can't we just if if, if oranges aren't in season we'll wait for them until they come in season let's eat what is what's in season promote promote what's in season so the, the consumer can also be selective can also say well I'm not going to buy this stuff I'd rather buy something that's locally produced you know what I mean uh, because that will reduce the enormous the problem is we're fighting against commercial interests. The, the world's economy works on grow, 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 spend, spend, spend. Because the more you spend, the more the wheel, the economic wheel turns. But the more the economic wheel turns, the more we're destroying the earth, basically. That's what, it, that's what the bottom line is. I think over the past 70, 80 years, we've demonstrated an incredible ability to destroy the environment. All the reports are saying that we're heading for, 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 a, for a crisis. We, we are in a crisis, I think, of, of existence, you know. Uh, because the, 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 the whole mindset is consume, consume. I mean, you're in advertising. You know what I'm talking about. Consume, use, spend, spend, spend your money. Uh, yeah, that's the mentality. So if you as a, if you're as a consumer are a little bit wiser, a little bit more understanding of what your carbon footprint, what, what, what are you, con how many resources of the earth are you using? So if you're buying an orange from uh, Israel, that thing had to come here somehow. Either it flew here or it came on a ship, but it's used enormous amount of resources to get here. It's probably all carbon-based resources. If you bought oranges that came from Richmond, yeah, okay, they had to truck them from Richmond, but you know that's it was probably a, a tenth of the consumption. But the, you know, the, Woolies will say, well, uh, you can't get oranges in South Africa in April, so we the consumer wants oranges, so we'll get them from Israel in. Now, my argument is, you know, what is, what is available in April? Eat whatever's available in April. You know, you don't die if you don't have oranges until they come in season. <laughs> so you, you say about what can individuals do, you know. The individuals shouldn't look for big solutions. They should look at themselves and how they consume the Earth's resources. If that's all they did, the planet would be a lot better off, I reckon. In my lifetime, there's been a, a 
dramatically visible change to the quality of the environment that we live in. Even going to Shushlui, in Philosophy Shushlui, I went there, I used to go there as a tiny little kid, my parents used to take me there, you couldn't see a light. You now stand at hilltop and you can see lights for Africa, you know, at the hilltop or um, what's the other camp, Pila camp at the top of the hill, now you can just see lights everywhere. Now, the people who have the lights are saying, well, at least we've got lights now, you know. But the, the environment is not what it used to be. And I think the environment has taken a punishment uh, as a result of human... So I, I, I basically said, I've always enjoyed it. I've seen a de deterioration. Let me do a little bit. You, I can't solve the problems of the world, but we've saved this grassland. This grassland, in 2000, we started working in 2011. We work one Saturday a month, and it was completely infested with invasive alien plants. So we've saved eight hectares of land. So we haven't saved the planet, but we've saved a little bit. And that's fine, you know. If another few hundred people did that, maybe we'd save a lot more, you know. And that's what the conservancies are about. So all of them all over the place doing a little bit, it all adds up at the end of the day. This episode gave me a lot to think about. I'm honestly trying to be more mindful of buying local and cutting back on plastic. Unfortunately, I'm finding it nearly impossible to eradicate it completely from my life because I shop at mainstream supermarkets. And even though I try to buy from smaller shops that offer more naked products every now and then, I don't always have the budget to do so. So I try and make better choices, but I still feel like I'm failing. I guess it's all a journey though, and at least I've started being more mindful. If you want to uh, learn more about these conservancies, they all have their own websites, so a simple Google search will bring them up, or you could also find all of them on Facebook. Foundation was created by me, Simone Scott, with original music created by Wayne Charles Simpson. Thank you.